0: Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 18 to verse 25. This is God's word for us today. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, many of us are called different things by different people. We might be called one thing at home, another at work, another with our friends. For a lot of you, I'm Pastor Matthew or Reverend Lancer or Rev. When our kids have friends over, I'm usually David's dad or Micah's dad. And I think once I got called, Reverend Mr. Lancer, David's dad. It was urgent. All those names and titles are true. And if you listen to the different things that our people are called, you learn some different things about them. Our text for today gave us two names or two titles for the Son of God. One, of course, is Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. And the other title, which is in that verse from Isaiah 7 that we opened our service with, quoting from Isaiah, the Gospel of Matthew says this child will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In our sermon this morning, we'll look at two problems that we have in our lives And then two ways that the coming of this baby, the coming of Jesus Emmanuel, solves those problems. The first problem we'll think about this morning is that we're little creatures. We're little creatures. God is so much bigger than we humans are. And we can be, we are, we should be overwhelmed by his presence. Jack London is an author who's well known for his wilderness stories, for stories of man encountering nature. London is good at showing us how big, how tough nature is and how fragile human beings are. And in in his story called To Build a Fire, which is set on the Yukon Trail near the Alaska-Canada border, London tells the story of an unnamed man who set out one day on a cold, cold morning on a nine-hour trek to a mining camp. The locals warned him not to go because it was an incredibly cold day. It was minus 75 degrees out there, temperature. And then you take a few more degrees off for wind chill. But the man is insistent on going. And the story tells us he has no, no imagination. Negative 5, negative 35, negative 75. It's all just numbers to him. But the local people know what negative 75 means. At negative 75, if you spit, before your spit hits the ground, it crackles and freezes. At negative 75, the vapor in your breath goes to ice on your lips as you breathe out. At negative 75, you have no margin for error. It is not safe to be out in that. But this man sets out into the wilderness anyway. And it's a beautiful hike, snow-covered trees, undisturbed, peaceful nature. But also unforgiving, awesome, terrible nature. After several hours of hiking, the man accidentally steps through through ice into an unfrozen pocket in a small creek. He gets his legs and his feet wet, and then they start to get cold. And they get colder and colder. So he stops and he builds a fire to warm himself up so he can keep going. But he builds it underneath a tree. And as the fire heats up the tree and heats up the snow, all the snow from the tree branches drops on his fire, and the man gets wet and cold again, and now he has no fire. He's out in this beautiful, terrible, cold, powerful place with no fire. So he desperately, desperately tries to build a fire, but by now he's too wet and too cold, and all the wood is wet, and there's nothing he can do. He's in trouble. So he starts running down the path thinking maybe if he keeps moving, maybe if he keeps moving, somehow he'll get over the cold and the wet. He's out of options. And eventually he's out of time. And the Sunday man ends up dying alone out in the negative 75 degree cold in the wilderness. The end. Well, that's a grim story. Why tell that story? Besides that, it's really cold out there today. Well, that story has an echo of the Old Testament in it. Now, Jack London, as far as I know, was not a Christian, and there are lots of differences between that story and Christian story. But there's an analogy between how that man came to experience the intensity of nature's power and how believers, especially in the Old Testament, experience the intensity of the power of God. In the Old Testament, when people drew near to God, it was a terrifying experience. Sometimes it was even a deadly one. God spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. Israel followed God as a blazing pillar of fire. There were earthquakes and lightning and there was fear and trembling when the Lord showed up in the midst of his people. The tabernacle and the temple that were built in the Old Testament were built so God could dwell with his people. But one of their features was that they kept a lot of distance between the Lord and even his chosen people. There was that distance there so that God's holiness and power wouldn't destroy the people. In the Old Testament, people died when they didn't show proper respect for God's power. And the Jewish people of Jesus' time knew this. So when they read that passage from Isaiah 7 that we read this morning and that Matthew quotes, when they heard this promise about Emmanuel, about God with us, they thought that was just a nice symbol. They thought it was just figurative language. There's going to be this guy who's going to come and the Lord is going to bless him in a special way. Because as the Old Testament shows all too clearly, you can't get too close to God. You can't stand in the presence of God without standing in the presence of danger. God is too much for us. Too holy, too powerful, just too much. Now, Jack London's not my favorite author, but I think his story gives us kind of a gut sense, a feel for what encountering God can be like. God is big. God is way beyond us. God is more than we can handle. It is not safe for us to just wander out into the presence of God. When we encounter the power of God, it's not cute, it's not manageable, it's not something we can control. It's like getting caught in a massive blizzard. We can't really stand the burning intensity of an encounter with the Lord. But just like that unnamed man in Jack London's story, we don't, we don't have the imagination to cope with that. We don't have this gut sense always of how powerful God is. We know God is holy. We know God is powerful. We know God is great. We know all that. But often we don't really feel it. We don't have that gut sense of who God really is in his power. We don't have that lived picture of how dangerous It can be to encounter the living God. And because we don't have that gut sense, we miss out on what a wonder it is that God can be with us in Jesus. But picture being out in the blast of sub-zero cold and snow. Not too hard to imagine today, right? But picture or feel the difference between being out there and being in here. Feel the difference between being out in the intensity of the elements and being brought here, being brought home where it's safe and warm. In Jesus' birth, in the incarnation, God comes to us and he brings us home. He makes us able to live with him. And the Christmas story, the story of Jesus being born as a human being, is a miracle. It's a wonder almost beyond understanding. The incarnation of God's son is almost as much a miracle as his resurrection is. And in fact, some of the early church fathers and some church traditions, even up to today, they pay more attention to the miracle of the incarnation than they do to the miracle of the resurrection. The thing that really impresses them is that God would stoop so low as to become one of us that God would lower himself so far as to walk among us, to be one of us. In Jesus, the God of the fire and the whirlwind comes to dwell with us. In Jesus, the God of incredible power comes and is born as a baby among us. Our God came down from on high to be with us. And because Jesus came down to be with us, he brings us up to be with God. Matthew 1 gives us this idea of Emmanuel, of God with us. And the Gospel of Matthew picks up that idea again in Matthew chapter 28. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives his disciples a command, and then he closes with a promise. And do you remember what that promise is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? The last thing we hear from Jesus in this gospel is our Lord, our God, our Emmanuel say to us, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always to the very end of the age. We don't always have that gut sense of the power and the might of God, of how much bigger he is than we are. And part of that maybe is that we have a dull sense of divinity and we need to get woken up a little bit to how great God is. But maybe another part of it is that most of us experience God through the life, through the work of Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. And in Jesus, we're able to approach God without fear. God still has the power of the whirlwind and lightning and thunder and all of that. But in Jesus, God has come to us. In Jesus, we find our hope. In Jesus, God is truly our loving Father. In Jesus, God is truly with us. And through the work of Jesus, God draws us closer to himself. Sometimes that happens in extraordinary, miraculous ways. Sometimes it happens in the ordinary things. As we pray and read our Bibles, as we gather and worship, as we sing and give offerings, as we hear sermons and participate in sacraments, in all these ways, because of the work of Jesus, because Jesus took on our nature and became one of us, God draws us to be with him. Jesus is truly God with us. But of course, the problem isn't only that we're small and that God is big. The problem is also that we've wandered away from God. We're lost. We've taken off. We've gotten away from God, and we can't get back. When I was in middle school, I spent a couple weeks on a service project in Rehoboth, New Mexico. And we spent a week working on the Christian school there, fixing up some of the churches. And then we spent another week learning about the history of the Navajo people and how they used to live. And also just living with Navajo Christians and learning what their lives are like now as they seek to follow the Lord. And as part of that second week of learning, we went and we camped out in the New Mexico wilderness for a couple days. We drove out a couple hours, drove up to the top of a plateau and camped in the middle of a forest and made some traditional food and had kind of a traditional camp out. And one afternoon, I decided I wanted to go for a walk, so I wandered out into the forest a little bit, got to the edge of the plateau, had a great view, looked around, enjoyed not having to help make dinner, hung out for a little longer than I needed to, and then turned around to head back. But on my way back through the forest, I got the landmarks wrong. The route that I'd taken on the way out and kind of marked out in my head wasn't quite right. So I walked into the forest, and I walked right back out to the edge of the plateau. I thought, well, that was dumb, but I'll try again. Walked back into the forest, had the same landmarks, followed them exactly how I thought I should, ended up back at the edge of the plateau. Did that a couple more times. And every time I went into the forest, I could kind of hear noise from the camp in the distance. So I knew I wasn't that far away, but I just could not get back. Just couldn't do it. Now finally I went really slow and I picked out the point I was making the wrong turn and I got back to the camp and I don't think anyone even noticed that I was gone. And actually that's been a secret till today so don't tell anyone, alright? Just kidding, no secrets here. But we've all wandered away from God. We've all gotten lost and by ourselves we can't get back. Maybe we've intentionally chosen to wander away just for a while. Just to do a few things we want to do. Or maybe we just made a wrong turn along the way and we can't quite get back. But all of humanity, all of humanity has a broken relationship with God. And really being lost isn't the best image here. It works, but it's not anything like strong enough. What the Bible actually tells us is that we're dead. We're dead in our sins. There is nothing we can do to get back to God. It's not like we can work harder or pay more attention or offer more sacrifices or anything. There is no hope for humanity. We're lost. We're dead. Things are bad. Now, on some level, all of us experience this reality in our lives. We all experience the reality of guilt and brokenness. And even when we don't bring it on ourselves the guilt, the brokenness, the sin of other people, well, we receive collateral damage from what they do. None of us can find our way back, and we're all wandering around in the forest, hurting ourselves and hurting each other. And if that doesn't ring true for you today, I bet it rings true for someone in your life. Maybe you've got a friend or a child even who's gotten into the drug scene and just can't get back out, and life is toxic, and they just keep hurting people. Maybe you've got an elderly parent or a relative who abuses everybody in the family indiscriminately, but there's just nothing you can do about it. Maybe you've got an employee who keeps stealing from you, and they're clever about it, and you're just never quite catching at it. Maybe you've got a boss who does their best to suck the life out of everybody at the company for his or her own good. Maybe you even have a spouse who's been unfaithful. And in this story, in Matthew chapter 1, that's exactly the situation that Joseph thinks he's found himself in. He's done his best to be a good guy. Verse 19 tells us that Joseph is a righteous man. And that doesn't mean he's perfect. But what it means is that he's done his best to follow God's law. He's done his best to be a good guy. And you can imagine how Joseph felt when he found out that Mary was pregnant. This person he was planning to spend his life with, the person who was going to be the closest to him of anybody, has already walked out on him. The relationship seems like it's broken. His hopes have been dashed. And all he's got left are bad options. He can pretend everything's okay and just get married. But what can their married life possibly look like? He can take Mary to court and try to get her punished as severely as possible. But what good is that going to do? Or he can divorce her quietly and just do his best to get on with his life and just live with the brokenness, live with the trouble, just put up with it. Joseph was stuck. He was lost, just like we often are. But then God comes and he transforms the situation. The answer to this problem is that Jesus has come to save us. Jesus comes to save us. Now that works differently for Joseph here, but in all our situations, when we're lost, Jesus comes to save us. In this case, for Joseph, what looks like a problem is actually a blessing. And the angel of the Lord comes and tells Joseph, God is at work here. This is a miracle. The baby who's born is to be named Jesus because this is the child. This is the child who will save all of God's people. The name Jesus means the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. So the angel's speech to Joseph is a sign that the Lord is going to deliver Joseph and all of God's people from their troubles. And that's still a sign for us today. We're all still stuck in this mess, partly because of other people's choices, partly because of our own, but in Jesus The Lord comes and he finds us. Jesus comes to save us. The Son of God was born to bring us from death to life. And in the Gospel of Matthew, this theme is most clear here in the birth story and then also in the story of Jesus' suffering and death. The angel tells Joseph that this baby will be named Jesus. And though Joseph didn't know it, the way that baby would save God's people would be through dying. This baby was born to die. Jesus' mission was to suffer and to sacrifice and to die for you. Jesus suffered for us. He sacrificed his life for us. And in doing so, he brings us back to life and brings us home. And that is our great Hope, And if you're looking for hope, that's the only hope you can find that will last you through all the hard things that come in this life and on even through and past death. Jesus saves us is the best thing we can ever hear and it's the only good news that really matters. And it's also good news that places a joyful obligation on us as Christians. Just as Jesus came to suffer and to sacrifice for us, we're called to suffer and to make sacrifices for other people. Now, this isn't about salvation. This isn't about us doing enough that God will be happy with us. Jesus has accomplished that, the end. Jesus has done it. But when we live in the way of Jesus, we lay our lives down for other people. We suffer for others. We suffer with others. We see this even in the life of Joseph in the early chapters of Matthew. The angel comes to Joseph and tells him what's going on so Joseph can rejoice in the good news. But the text doesn't tell us that the angel goes to the rest of Joseph's family or to the rest of Joseph's village. It just went to Joseph. And so Joseph pays a price even for his obedience. Instead of a quiet divorce, he goes on with a public marriage. And that means that he's involved in the apparent shame of the situation. That means that everyone around him is going to look at him and think, Well, you messed up, didn't you? And you can imagine how well the explanation that, Oh, an angel came to me and told me this. You can imagine how well that would play with the rest of the village. And then we come to Matthew chapter 2, When Joseph has to flee with his family from King Herod, Who wants to wipe them out. When that angel told Joseph to stick around... He was calling Joseph to a life of suffering and sacrifice. Also of salvation and joy and hope and all of those things. But suffering and sacrifice. Obedience to the Lord just made Joseph's life harder. It just meant he was called to make more sacrifices. And that's often how it is for us too if we're really going to follow Jesus. We don't just get to rest in the love that Jesus gives to us. We have to express that love to others. And so we're called to put aside our own interests for the interests of others. We're called to serve those without power and influence. To serve those who will never be able to serve us back or to pay us back. It means giving up control over our time and our money. It means taking on inconvenience and trouble for other people. It means that we are perpetual living sacrifices because Jesus is the great sacrifice who saves us. And the great secret, the great mystery of our salvation is that when we are in Christ, we don't experience these things as a burden. The call to sacrifice is not a requirement so that God will love you or so that you'll be saved or so that things will be good enough. The call to sacrifice is a call to live out the new life that Jesus had brought you into. When God finds us in our sin and he brings us home, he also transforms us. And the secret of Christmas is that when we have Jesus, we have everything we need. And so whatever sacrifices we're called to make, whatever suffering we experience, if we are in Christ, we have everything we need. Everything we need. Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, saves us from our sins. He comes down to us and he brings us up to God. When we approach the infinite power of the Lord, our Emmanuel brings us safely home. When we find ourselves lost and broken in sin, Jesus saves us and he makes us whole. As we look forward to Christmas this week, the baby born. The baby born on Christmas Day is our Jesus, Emmanuel. The Lord who truly saves us. The God who is really with us. Blessed be the name of the Lord.